What's going on, Wildcatters? It's Jake Corley here with Digital Wildcatters and want to give you guys a quick update. Six years ago, Colin and I came up with the idea of bringing a South by Southwest style event of energy to Houston. And this October, we're manifesting this dream into reality. Is it a crazy idea? Absolutely. Because our mission of Fuse is to bring together the builders and the innovators in energy that are transforming how we produce, distribute, and store energy. But in order to do that, we have to bring together all subsectors of energy, oil and gas, renewables, hydrogen, nuclear, geothermal, utilities, and battery technology. This is unlike anything the world has ever seen before. And on top of that, we're taking over five city blocks in East Downtown Houston, four stages with three content tracks, seven venues, and expecting north of 2,000 attendees. If you're looking to showcase your technology, we've got expo space for about 100 companies, as well as the opportunity to demo your tech live on stage. Come join us October 26th and 27th here in Houston to experience more opportunities for networking, learning, brainstorming, and career-changing connections than ever before at Fuse 22. Tickets are now on sale at digitalwildcatters.com forward slash Fuse, F-U-Z-E. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. My guest today is Mike Taylor of Aegis, and I pronounced that correctly. Yes, Brian would be happy. Brian would be happy. Brian learned me how on it. Now, you know, we've talked on the podcast because I've had a couple of repeat guests come on. My priest has come on a couple of times. Brad Olson has come on, and we've talked about how sequels just really suck. We haven't done a sequel and changed out the lead actor before. So uh, no pressure, Mike. Perfect. There we go. Um, but I, I appreciate you coming on because I think in five years from now, when we look back at all the podcasts, I think this is going to be an important one because you've been doing carbon cap and trade, emissions cap and trade, environmental cap and trade, for probably longer than anyone on the planet. And I don't understand how any of that works. And I feel like I need to, because I feel like that's going to be a big deal in the uh, in the future. So the, the open-ended question is, what is that stuff? Or how did you get into that? Take that kind of wherever you want to go. Sure. Uh, so, so cap and trade, it really started with the passage of the 1990 Clean Air Act. Um, and then the EPA started a program in the early 90s around acid rain, SO2. Um, so basically, they took all the power plants, you know, call it roughly 25 megawatts or greater, and said, we're going to cap the amount of SO2 emissions per year that in aggregate the whole universe uh, in the in the program can emit, and then each year they lower that cap, um, and that's how they. But they allow the companies inside to determine who's going to lower their emissions overall to meet the cap, and you're allowed to buy and sell between the market participants. Uh, so companies can put on you know scrubbers and reduce their SO2 emissions by 98 percent, and then they'd have surplus credits, and then they could sell it to someone else who it's not you know, cost effective for them to put on control technology and they allow trading, you know, in between those facilities. And as long as they stay below the cap, you know, the program's successful and emissions drop over time. So that's really started emissions trading 
And I don't know a lot about the acid rain, but kind of what I do know is from, I think it was Jeff Curry or the guy from Goldman did a podcast and I just happened to hear about it. I mean, the science was pretty settled that, yes, this was leading to acid rain. Yes, we had to reduce it. So we figured out a mechanism for putting a cost on it and we just raised the cost over time or limited the the amount and and that drove it and that program actually worked right yeah, I mean, was, we don't have acid rain today extremely successful yeah was so so what were attributes maybe of that program um and the problem it was dealing with that might be helpful cuz i think ultimately where we're going to start talking about is carbon emissions have a cost. I mean, everybody has to admit that. I mean, even if you don't believe it's leading to global warming and you just believe it's annoying when you're in a tunnel and you're coughing because the car in front of you is emitting something, it does have a cost that's not priced today. So I think we're we're ultimately going to be talking about that and, and the like. Is there something, though, from kind of this uh program that started it really with the acid rain are there lessons we can learn from that yeah i I think once you put a price on something um uh, people pay more attention to it uh so companies you know you take microsoft for example they're now charging you know uh business units internally when they travel um for their co2 emissions and say you're going to pay for those co2 emissions so once you put a price on something uh, and and you can you know measure the emissions. You can encourage people to start taking actions. Especially you know take California for example. They created a carbon cap and trade program. First year was 2013, and anybody that emitted more than 25,000 tons, they were put in the cap and trade program. And prices started at $10 per ton in quarterly auctions, and then increased by CPI plus five percent every year. So we've gone from you know, $13 a ton to the high we hit last year was $35 a ton. So, and each company was given a free allocation that ratcheted down each year. So once you assign a price, you start seeing companies and management uh, say, hey, is there ways that we can reduce it? And if it's cheaper to reduce these credits or reduce our emissions and, uh, you know, for business purposes, then then they'll do so. But really putting a cost on something is really what drives you know, incentive or incentives and, and change. I got you. And so before we, we jump into, to kind of today, how'd you get started in this? So, you know, I was born in New Orleans. I went to LSU and, uh, I had two, you know, big internships. Um, and one was at, uh, Enron, um, back in, you know, 2000. And, uh, the other one was, uh, was at Microsoft. And I did it back to back. I actually took a semester off when I went up to Redmond and uh, and I got two, you know, full time job offers from both. And, you know, well, what's your major finance? So you're you're a finance person. You got to And are you writing code at Microsoft? What, what are you what are you doing at Microsoft? No. Yeah, I, I was in the, the Treasury. Okay. So. Um, so at the time, managing all their long-term strategic investments and all the technology companies they partner with or have shares with, you know, in the treasury, they also manage all their foreign exchange risk. 
Um, you know, it was probably, you know, 50 billion at the time that uh, the treasury was managing, which is a much larger number today. Right. Gotcha. Okay. So you did that. And then what were you doing at Enron? So, so Enron, I had, uh, when I got the internship, I said, Hey, I'd like to be as close to trading as possible. Um, and they said, Hey, do you want to, do you mind waking up early for your internship? You know, I'm thinking, you know, maybe, you know, 6am, 6.30, they want me in there before everybody else. And I said, yeah, sure. And they said, great, please report at 4am, uh, you know, to the natural gas desk and go to these bulletin board systems, you know, the old school dial up, get the flows from yesterday, update everything and have a report. You know, and that's back when we used paper, photocopy for every trader and every scheduler, have it on their desk by 7.15 a.m. So uh, that's what I did from 4 to 7.15 a.m. every morning. And then after that, they said, look, you're an intern. We don't really care what you do. Uh, so I would just ask the traders as much questions as I felt I could without them telling me to, to take a hike. Um, and then luckily for myself, one of the, the main traders, uh, she went on maternity leave. Um, and so her seat was open and that's when Enron online was, was growing. And the guy next to me is like, Hey, I'll let you sit in this desk. Just do everything. What I, what I say. So I was able to be exposed to trading at Enron after I did my you know, three, three hours and 15 minutes of reporting and data entry uh, every morning. I don't know if I've told this story on the podcast, so it may, uh, it may be repeat for, for listeners, but, you know, Enron Online came out and at least one of the fears was the industry saying, I don't want to trade directly with Enron. I don't want them to know my positions. And we actually put together, because I was at Stevens, the Little Rock, Arkansas investment at the uh, bank at the time, we put together an idea called Enron Anonymous, where we were basically going to be, in effect, a website that sat between client and Enron online, and you would just trade for uh, through us, and we would aggregate, and we'd directly try, tie into Enron online, and that way, theoretically, Enron wouldn't know, they'd just know Stevens was doing all this trading and uh, we actually put together a business plan, pitched a few guys at Enron. I want to say there was even a meeting that Skilling popped his head in uh, at the time. And for whatever reason, it just kind of died. It never got any traction. And thank goodness. because. <laughs> uh, so did you, go, did you go work for Enron after that? Or? So, yeah. So deciding between Microsoft and Enron, which obviously at the time – you know, two great, great options, you know, booming companies. Um, but uh, Microsoft, we supported the people, we supported the money, you know, we didn't make the money where Enron, the trading firm, uh, the traders were the ones making the money. And so I decided, I was like, I'd rather be the guy making the money than, than supporting it. And one of the reasons, you know, Microsoft, I was there on its 25th year anniversary and they brought Sinbad in the comedian and then they rented out Safeco Field and so they had, you know, the Office group, the Windows group, the Xbox group, all the all the programmers and the people that made the products, they had reserve seating. And when the Treasury showed up, there was about eight of us. They said, hey, you don't have reserve seating. Just go somewhere up on the third deck. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, you know, so that that's just kind of an example of, hey, you were supporting the money. You weren't making the money. Um, but, uh, you know, so we actually, you know, 
did with the senior guys, like, hey, we're going to go in. And we sat in the Windows group. And every time they mentioned Windows, we grabbed the noisemaker so we wouldn't be found out that we were in the <laughs> wrong section. Um, but, yeah, that's why I decided to, to go into the trading as I kind of wanted to be on the front lines and and uh, and try to make the money for the firm versus you're, supporting it. You're, you're too young to remember this, but uh, Sinbad, my favorite joke from him from way back in the day, there was this horrific aftershave cologne called uh, Aqua Velva. And their whole commercials and pitch was, there's something about an Aqua Velva man. And Sinbad's joke was always, yeah, he shops at Kmart. <laughs> and so, yeah, that's funny. The uh, so, you went, so you went to work for Enron. What are you doing there? Yeah. So after spending a summer on, you know, the, a natural gas desk, uh, I, you know, I when I got the full-time offer, I said, well, what's the quickest way to trade? And they said, if you want to trade power or oil, or not gas the lines way back there. But if you want to go to the emissions desk and that, you know, the one guy doesn't show up tomorrow, you're, you're next in line. So, so I joined the emissions group, uh, you know, in 2001, um, and, you know, spent my time there and obviously Enron declared bankruptcy, uh, late 2001. Yeah. My, uh, my ex-wife was working at Enron at the time and, my office was at 1100 Louisiana on, I think, the 41st floor. And they were putting up that new Enron building literally a floor a week. I mean, it was just hightailing. In about June of 2001, the the new building just stopped. And I was always like, what's going on with that? And, uh, and Kim goes, yeah, I don't know. But they told us to go pencils down on deals because she was financing oil and gas deals. So she's like, yeah, you know, they tell us to go to pencils down. So we're over here playing board games every day and uh, should have known something was uh, was up. And I think probably the only reason as the stock was falling, we didn't load up on the stock was it was so cumbersome at Kane Anderson to get approval to buy stock that, you know, we, we didn't do it. So what was emissions trading back then? What, yeah. what were you even doing? Yeah. So, so emissions trading back then, uh, you know, there was the SO2 and NOx, you know, so two pollutants that occur when you combust natural gas, coal, or oil um, predominantly. And that was that cap and trade program that was administered by the EPA. So the Environmental Protection Agency uh, created the rule and majority of the states in the Northeast, Midwest, and South were in this trading programs. So so Enron would buy and sell um, SO2 allowances and, and NOx allowances in those programs. Carbon trading didn't really exist in the U.S. at the time. Yeah, do those programs still exist today? Because I'm not even sure I'm familiar with them. They, they, they do, um, but they've had a few kind of name changes. Uh, so the acid rain SO2 allowance program still does exist uh, but the market is so oversupplied with allowances, um, you know, they're literally worth less than a dollar per right. allowance. And, you know, the peak of that was like $1,630 uh, back in, you know, 2006. But because uh, facilities did such a good job at reducing their emissions, you know, the program really became um, irrelevant at the time. Um, but they created a new program, same concept called the cross-state air pollution rule, and uh, and they offset NOx both annually as well as an ozone season, which is May through September, 
um, which causes ozone when the temperatures are higher and you have NOx emissions, that's most likely to cause ozone in the air. Um, so they have an ozone program, they have an annual NOx program, and they also have an annual you know, SO2 program. And the EPA is actually in the middle of a rulemaking process that would add more states to the program and reduce the supply, increasing the strictness of the program. Gotcha. Um, and prices have actually gone up, uh, you know, probably, uh, you know, a few thousand percent on uh, on NOx allowances this year after being a relatively sleepy market for years. But when you decrease the the supply um, to a point, obviously the demand for power, you know, stays stays similar. And as we've you know, more renewables being built have have helped, but uh, EPA continues that program. So, have they actually worked? I mean, just have we over time reduced NOx and? Yeah, yes, the program's been very successful. You know, as we discussing acid rain is is no longer a problem right. because you reduced. And one of the reasons that it's worked so well in SO two and NOx is you can put on large control equipment. Uh, so in SO two, it's 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 called a scrubber. And it has anywhere from a 98 to 99 percent destruction efficiency of SO2. Um, it may cost you know hundreds of millions of dollars you know to to build those, but you you get the destruction of of the pollutant. Same thing for NOx. It's it's called SCRs. You know, getting 95 to 99 percent destruction of the pollutant. Um, so it's been extremely successful. And you know, when we talk about carbon. The fact that that technology doesn't really exist that you could put on a facility tomorrow commercially across all industries, that's why the price of carbon and reducing carbon is a much greater challenge than historically NOx and SO2. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that makes that makes a, a lot of sense. And I guess, so let's let's fast forward today and, and, and let's talk carbon. So if I'm pro-carbon cap-and-trade to reduce global warming. What's kind of my story? What's my narrative there? And then I'll, I'll ask you the flip side of that after you've, you've been for it. I'll ask you later, what, you know, what's the argument against it? So, you know, we'll, we'll take, you know, there's two main programs in the U.S. that are actively putting a price on carbon and, and trying to drive emissions. One is called the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative in the Northeast. Uh, it's currently 12 states. Uh, I say currently because, you know, Pennsylvania and Virginia are trying to determine if, if they want to be in the program. Um, when you have governors uh, elected that are a different political party than the previous governor or state legislature, sometimes they argue whether they should be in the program because it's it's for power generation only and for every ton of co2 that your power plants emit in the program they have to have one allowance to to offset that um and it's an annual compliance and so and they auction off the the co2 allowances which the states get the funds and then they choose how they get to you know allocate those funds and theoretically those funds are remediating somehow planting yeah. trees or or something yeah okay. energy efficiency programs um you know so various things that all should be reducing you know co2 or, or helping you know um, climate change uh some people view that as you're just it's just a tax you're increasing the price of power and you're just being passed on to the residents right. of the state and so power prices are absolutely higher 
um, because CO2 is, is a cost that the power generation companies uh, have to occur. Um, but it helps incentivize renewable energy projects from the aspect of they're carbon free. Um, so they don't have to pay that cost. They get to sell into a power market that's presumably a higher price because all the coal, oil, not gas plants are all factoring in a, a price of CO2. Um, and you have seen emissions, you know, come down, you know, over time. And, and that's the grid just getting cleaner, older facilities being retired, as well as renewables coming up and, and new nat gas replacing older coal plants. Yeah. And what's the other program? You said there were two going on. Yeah. So the other one is, is California. Um, so the, what California did is they started the program in 2013 and, and that was sector wide. So if you make cement, uh, you're in the program, uh, power generation, if you're doing mining, oil and gas, um, where the Reggie states were just power. So there they put a tax on various, not a tax, they put a, they put a, a CO2 cost on various industries that emitted any industry that really emitted over 25,000 tons a year. Um, and they started in 2013. Most industries got a free allocation, which drops every year. Uh, so we can talk about, you know, specifically like an example of an oil and gas company, how that's changed over time. But that's that's the other main program uh, in the U.S. And California is they actually linked with the Canadian province, Quebec. Um, uh, they have similar rules and, you know, and just one allowance that trades between the two. Oh, that's a, that's interesting because they've got they've got cap and trade stuff carbon based in Europe, don't they? They do. Anything in Asia? Uh, China has has started some programs, um, but yeah, the the European ETS is 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 the oldest carbon uh, trading system uh, in in the world and has been quite expensive for for the facilities to comply with. It's the most expensive carbon allowance uh, that exists out there. And. And so the the genesis of all this stuff, just to kind of, I always joke on this, that my mom listens to this podcast. So we have to have a periodic moment for mom on this. Basically, cap and trade walks in and says, you can emit X and we're going to decline that over time. You get this, you get this, you get that. It's declining over time. And if you need more, you're going to have to go buy it. And theoretically, the penalty causes you to invest to, to cut it down. Does that have an issue? So, so, and, and then the, the proponent side of that, you've kind of, you've kind of laid out is we, we reduce the emissions, uh, over time. What's the argument against cap and trade, uh, type, type solutions to reducing carbon? Uh, so, I mean, one thing, you know, California, for example, so California was is part of what's called the WCI, the Western Climate Initiative. And it was supposed to be multiple U.S. states, as well as multiple Canadian provinces were going to do this program, because what that leads to is potentially leakage, you know, across borders. Sure. Just so move the plant to Reno or whatever. So, yeah. yeah, for example, yeah, cement plant shutting down in California, increasing their production in Arizona, and then just trucking the cement into the state. Yeah. So you didn't do anything for CO2 emissions um, except cost yourself potentially jobs in the state um, and you reduce CO2 emissions in the state. But right. unlike NOx and SO2, which is a regional problem, 
um, you know, ozone issues with NOx and VOC that you could see locally, um, you know, CO2 is, is a global problem. So, you know, a ton reduced in California offset a ton increased in the state of Georgia. Plus some trucking. Yeah. There, there's, there's no benefit to, to the air. So, you know, states really, you know, California would really like its neighboring states and provinces or nationally to have a CO2 trading program um, because, you know, it's a global issue. It's not a state issue. Uh, yeah, that's the the thing I always phrase it, and pardon my French, but it's there's no non-peeing section of the pool. I mean, if somebody peed in the pool, they peed in the pool. So so I guess I guess kind of anti-cap and trade would be, I guess there is a segment out there that just the amount of CO2 is in dispute. You know, you know, we, we you know, we, some people think, you know, it can go here. Some people can go there. And then I think the, the bigger impediment is probably if you need to do it for the whole wide world, how are we divvying, divvying up allocations between us, China, India, and, you know, let's let's talk a little bit on the oil and gas sector in California. So they obviously have a cost uh, to run their their operations in California. So, for example, a facility that uh, produced a million um, barrels of oil equivalent per year in 2013 uh, with the price of CO2 plus their free allocation, which was about 98 percent when the program started, that cost them about $135,000 to comply with the program in 2013. In 2022, the exact same facility, exact same operations, it's about $2 million per year to comply with, with the program. Nothing changed. Same emissions, same production. In 2030, that's projected to be over $3 million per year. So you're increasing the cost uh, for oil and gas in California um, while, you know, Countries, you know, Saudi, uh, Peru, Ecuador, Venezuela, they don't have these programs and cost on their producers. So it's cheaper to produce in those other countries. So you're, you know, disincentivizing new production in California and you put those, you know, uh, you put the fuel on tankers, cargoes, ship them here in California while having CO2 emissions associated with the transportation, having less CO2 stringency to produce the oil from a, from, from a start. So you could see how California, while they're reducing their emissions because they're putting a cost on carbon for oil and gas, uh, emissions are increasing in other countries because the demand for, for fuel gasoline has not dropped dramatically in the state of California. Arguably you've, you've kind of even made it worse if you will, because of the transportation, what I'll call leakage or additions to the, to the system. Yeah. So that's why California would love, for everyone to have a similar program. So there's, you don't have those, you know, issues of reducing in California, but increasing somewhere else that has less, uh, less stringent programs. Gotcha. Yeah. Just California is unilaterally disarming right now, I guess is maybe a way to put it. So, so what do we see kind of, okay. So we've got, you know, all these targets of 2050 and 2060. And I, uh, I think, G figured out his life expectancy and added five years to uh, to to China's China's targets. But I mean, do we see 
cap and trade type scenarios potentially happening? What, if we're sitting here in 10 years, what are we talking about? So, you know, in addition to the cap and trade, we're seeing corporations that are saying, hey, we're going to do our part and buy carbon offsets, which is a whole separate uh, program from from cap and trade. Carbon offsets are, are voluntary. So you're seeing, you know, companies and, you can, you know, Microsoft is very outspoken in public what they're doing. You know, they're trying to offset all of their carbon emissions. Google is the same, you know, Spotify, Etsy, et cetera. And what they're doing is buying carbon offsets from companies or projects that are reducing their emissions for voluntary reasons, nothing to do with compliance. So because, you know, it's very difficult to pass a carbon cap and trade program, you know, it, it was tried in 2009, it passed in the House, but it couldn't get through a Democrat-controlled Senate um, because it would really affect, you know, the coal industry. And there's a number of Democrat senators that were from coal states in 2009. So you're starting to people say companies say, hey, we're going to take it in our own hands and do voluntary steps, including purchasing carbon offsets, in addition to trying to reduce their carbon emissions as, as much as possible. Um, but I think to see meaningful changes, uh, you know, obviously Europe has has led the way with with their program, but getting countries like China, you know, India, Brazil, and the U.S. to have federal wide cap and trade programs is really what it's going to take to see significant reductions, you know, in those countries. But cap and trade programs do work when you put a price on it. You know, companies are going to find ways to to reduce it. Technology gets better, incentives get better, um, and you're going to see reductions. But it's hard to do it when it's not at the federal level, you know, of the countries. Yeah, that's always Charlie Munger's show me your incentives and I'll show you your behavior. So um the so the offset programs I find interesting. Is there a global certification of what an offset is, or do we kind of have a an ad hoc set of committees that determine what a what an offset is? So you have what's you know carbon registries, and they're non for profit. So we have you know three main ones in 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 the U.S. Um, that have existed from 1999, I think, to 2007 was was the last one. And what they invite is, you know, organizations to produce a carbon methodology that says if we do this activity, um, we should generate these many this this amount of carbon offsets, and that activity should be additional, so it should not be business as usual. Um, and then the carbon registries say yes, we approve it. Uh, we're open for business. Any company that shows up registers a project with us, hires a third-party verifier that's approved by the carbon registry. Uh, they go out and they do a site visit, which which prevents fraud from people just saying they have a project and turn in paperwork, but you actually have the site visit, produce that report, it goes back and forth, and they ultimately settle, okay, we agree this forestry project, here's 100,000 carbon offsets for the activity that you're doing that's not business as usual, you know, pay us our issuance fee as, as the registry and we'll officially issue you these credits. So that's how it's really worked in the, in the U.S. And then corporations say, you know, we verify uh, or, or we trust in that system, in that registry, and we'll buy those offsets and retire them to offset the emissions that we had at our, our, our company. So that's the way that it's historically been done. So 
am I getting this right that it's and this is going to sound horribly cynical, but it's well, I was going to go build a plant, now I'm not, and so I have you know x amount of offsets. Please pay me. I mean, that I know that's the horrifically cynical way to look at it, but no. So this is in in your example. I was going to start doing something that was going to start pollute. I'm not, so you should pay me. Majority of these offsets are, you know, I was emitting. Now I found a way to reduce that. I was at 10. Now I'm at eight. So pay me for two. So for example, landfills. So, you know, landfills that have organic waste, if they're small enough, they weren't required to put in a gas collection system, capture the methane and flare it. Um, And so they were emitting and they were allowed to emit by law. So one of the early uh, methodologies was to come in, put a gas collection system in these landfills capture the methane and destroy it. So you've actually avoided um, emitting CO2. Um, and it costs you money to build that gas collection system as well as to to maintain it, um, make sure it's uh, calibrated and then have those third parties. So that's typically, it's not that, hey, pay me not to do something, but it's more of, hey, I'm actually avoiding or reducing emissions that were already occurring. Do you have any idea kind of, globally us or whatever what the size of that market is is two hundred thousand dollars of this happening a year or is it multi-billions any idea uh it's certainly yeah a multi-billion uh dollar system um you know california uh for example between california and quebec you know if we say there's emissions of 350 million tons per year and if you have an average price of thirty dollars uh, $30 a ton, you know that's over a ten billion dollar market just in California and Quebec. Um, uh, Europe uh, is even bigger, and then of course you know all the other countries. So, you know, I'm not sure if you know a trillion is 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 the uh, the, the right number. Um, but if you look at all the emissions and then you assign a certain cost, it's it's a very very large number. Interesting. The because, uh, I mean, the way I've kind of looked at carbon uh, reduction is this isn't government driven. I mean, it really is consumers, companies. I mean, it's a tidal wave because people want it to happen, and and so I think a lot of money is going to get spent. It has been spent and is going to continue to to get spent on that front because this is a tidal wave, and it's showing absolutely no signs of of, I mean, energy crisis notwithstanding. Yeah, I mean, you look at companies like Lyft. Every you know ride is is carbon neutral. Um, so they they calculate what their CO two emissions are. You know on it whether that's a quarterly or annually basis. And then they work with carbon offset developers who sell them the credits and, and then they retire those. And, you know, you want to take a carbon neutral flight, you know, you check a box. Um, you want to ship your FedEx or UPS, you know, you could check a box, make it carbon neutral. So you're definitely seeing demand from consumers, uh, which driving these voluntary actions and, and people are willing to pay, you know, more for the same product if they know, um, you know, they've offset their carbon emissions. Have we been able, have you seen any studies that have actually kind of quantified the the benefits of this or is it because it's all private, it's hard to gather data on it? 
Um, you know, I, there's definitely been, uh, a number of studies, uh, done. Um, but, um, I, I don't have any good, yeah. good examples for you. Yeah, no, that makes, that makes sense. So at Aegis, what do you guys do in this space? So, you know, let's take a California oil and gas entity. Um, so, you know, with their production, you know, their emissions over 25,000 tons, they're in this mandatory program and they have to comply. So we help them understand the program. We help them understand what their free allocations are going to be. We help them understand, you know, what their deficit is each year and then help them come up with a strategy to, to reduce cost. Um, so there's forward markets in carbon. So, you know, when the Russia-Ukraine conflict uh, prices on California carbon drop, that was mainly sympathetic to European carbon allowances dropping when there was concern that there wasn't going to be enough energy, you know, continue to run uh, all the factories and industry in, in Europe. And it was a lot of the same global trading firms. Um, so we saw that as a great opportunity. There was over a 20% price and we were able to help our clients hedge uh, not only for spot purchases, for but forward purchases for this year, next year. So helping them try to or helping them comply with the program in the least cost-effective way. Uh, in addition to that, one thing we haven't discussed, what we also do at Aegis, is help companies uh, potentially um, able create revenue from from these environmental programs. So, for example, if if you have an oil and gas operation here, you know, in Harris County or one of the seven adjacent counties, we're what's known as non-attainment uh, for the federal standards for for ozone, which is NOx and VOC. If you shut down a well and you plug it uh, and, you know, turn all the equipment off, you can generate uh, VOC and NOx emission reduction credits, which then you can turn around and sell to a big chemical or refinery plant that's being built in the area. Um, in addition, there's, you know, if you're doing carbon capture storage, um, there's the ability to earn voluntary carbon offsets. Uh, so some companies are doing activities, but they're not aware that there's the ability to generate environmental credits that a program has been set up. They just realize, hey, we've reduced emissions. But so helping everyone understand whether it's a liability or an asset, the whole carbon and environmental credit trading, and it's only getting more complicated, uh, you know, as we go. Um, in a addition, we also help companies that are producing renewable fuels. So renewable diesel, renewable natural gas uh, has, has been growing dramatically the last five, six years. And if you sell those fuels in the state of California or Oregon, you earn what's called a low carbon fuel standard credit um, that, that you can sell. So those facilities um, have been very profitable and growing um, because of these programs that you know incentivize uh, reducing, you know, traditional fossil fuel usage. Gotcha. Now that's, that's interesting. The, is there any sort of magnitude of dollars associated with this? If, if, you know, if, if I do X, Y, and Z, can I add $10,000 a year of revenue? Can I add millions of dollars? Do you have any, even if it's just an example of a project, cause I, you, you could name a number right now and, I would be shocked by that number, no matter what the number is right now. So, so let's take carbon capture storage for enhanced oil recovery. Um, there was a number of projects done, you know, in the two thousands, 
And some of those projects generated two to three million tons of voluntary carbon offsets per year. And so- That's just injecting CO2 in to increase the flood. Got it. That's exa- exactly. And and those credits historically back then maybe were worth a dollar, $2 a ton. So, you know, to the project, it was worth, you know, call it four to $6 million. Um, because of fact prices have increased and we've seen a demand for new projects, I'm sorry, for, for credits associated with U.S.-based projects, because majority of the carbon offsets are created in developing countries. Um, and majority of the people buying carbon offsets are from developed countries. So when we can take a U.S.-based carbon offset project uh, and sell it to a U.S. US-based company, they they feel good that they're buying in the same country, that their emissions occurred, that there was a reduction. So in the CCS EOR case, um, prices have at least doubled, if not triple. So you go from making four to six million a year to potentially 12 to 15 million a year, you know, for the same size facility. And people are projecting that carbon offsets need to get to $20, $50 a ton on average. Um, we have carbon offsets trading significantly higher than that, but that's what it's going to take to really drive down carbon emissions. So you can imagine that entity that was earning two bucks a ton, you know, five, six, 10 years from now, they might be earning 20 or 30. So the magnitude can get pretty high, pretty significantly, depending on the the price of carbon offsets. And right now, with the system that we're talking about, it's voluntary. So prices going up are board of directors telling companies we're going from X to Y. Is that is that basically right? Since there's not a, a governmental hammer, if you will. Yes. And what you see, once once uh, companies go 100% carbon neutral and they make a press release and they buy all their emissions for, you know, call it calendar year 2021, it's uh, the CEOs, the board, they don't want to go in 2022 and say, oh, we only offset 70% because prices went up. Right. So once they kind of make that commitment, um, they really they really try to stick to it. Now that that raises an interesting question, and we deal with, with Aegis clients, is uh, if prices of carbon offsets go up, do you look at other types of carbon offsets? So typically nature-based offsets always trade at a premium to you know, technology or renewable-based projects. So if prices double, you know, do you change what type of carbon offsets that you're buying because of budgetary reasons, or do you, you know, continue to buy the same and you just double your your budget from the previous year? So that's a discussion that a lot of companies in the U.S. Uh, have had to have uh, after the big run up in in 2021. So what's what's what are some examples of nature based uh, carbon reduction? I mean, obviously, plant the tree. Yeah. So 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 forestry projects. So. Um, so less of planting the tree, but taking an existing forest and changing the way that you manage that forestry. It's called improved forestry management. Uh, gets into a lot of detail, but that's a nature-based. Uh, another one that that is trending is around soil, uh, changing management at the farm that increases the amount of carbon that's stored in the soil. And those credits are trading between twenty to forty dollars a ton. You know, for example, and then you know you might have landfill credits where you're capturing credits from a landfill, but from a PR perspective, 
you know, people would rather say, hey, I'm supporting this forest than maybe I'm supporting the the landfill down the street. <laughs> right. Uh, so that's why those credits, even though from the registry point of view, they're both a ton of CO2. That's why those credits might trade between, you know, six and eight dollars a ton. A forestry might be 15 to 20 and then soil credits might be between 20 and 40. And then there's all other various types of, of carbon offsets. But the PR value in the volunteer world is really what's driving. So that's that's some of the nature base. Some of the other credits, you know, hydro uh, in Brazil produces a carbon offset. It's a developing country. The same hydro project in the U.S. would not produce an offset per the rules. Uh, India wind projects produce a carbon offset, but wind projects, you know, in the U.S. or Europe would would not. Um, so that's you know that's why majority of the credits come from developing countries, and they typically trade at a discount to higher quality, you know, U.S. based projects. Yeah. So I've talked about this once on the podcast and I'll, uh, I'll lay this on uh, you and I'll have all the facts wrong because I, I, I read the article, gosh, six to eight weeks ago. But uh, supposedly one of the best things we could do for carbon capture is increase the whale population. You know, we had four million whales on the planet 100 some odd years ago. And of course, we hunt them, use them for oil. We're down to like 1.2 million whales. And the amount of CO2 that they sequester in their body over their lifetime, and then they just sink to the bottom of the ocean, one, does a lot for, uh, for sequestration. The other thing, too, is their poop is the greatest fertilizer for plankton. And plankton, I think, we've figured out recently you know, 40% of the photosynthesis on the planet is done by plankton. And so swimming in the trails of, uh, of, of whales and their poop, um, is, is that, and so we've, we've had the joke around here, but I want to do more work on it and be serious about it is we need to increase the whale population. Supposedly what happens today is they get really fascinated by a boat and they get hit by the boat and that's what kills them. And that's why we're kind of capped out at a, uh, a million two whales. Yeah, I, I I did listen to that podcast where you where you where you <laughs> mentioned that, and yeah, and a lot of people will make the same d- discussion around you know cows, um, you know if uh, the cows you know burping and farting you know creating methane emissions as as well. So you've seen those things where you know I, I don't know yeah I think it was serious where they you know you put a mask in front of the cow's uh, mouth to, to kind of capture that and have it from being released in the air. I don't know if that's uh, commercially uh, viable, but, uh, but yeah, animals obviously play a large uh, role, you know, in CO2 emissions. I had, I had a fella on the uh, podcast that wants to grow kelp and I forget it's the, the brown, it's the red and the, the brown kelp or the brown and the, the red and the green kelp, whatever it is. One of them, and I can't remember which one, you just, it absorbs, you know, absorbs carbon and then you just sink it to the bottom. The other one, supposedly you can harvest and use a like tiny bits of it as feed for cattle. And it helps reduce the methane emissions from cows burping by like 90%. And uh, I don't think Sean's gotten that business up and running yet, but uh, 
he he was commissioning a study from I think the University of Nebraska just to you know does the cow meat taste the same does the milk taste the same and all but uh and that's one of the we field calls probably on a weekly basis hey I have this technology or I have this idea that's going to reduce CO2 emissions and then the question is you know can we get it approved by a carbon registry that then you can earn carbon offsets, um, you know, and and sell it to a corporation. So, you know, putting a price on CO2 and incentivizing people to think of ways that you can reduce CO2, especially if they can get paid for it, is, you know, it's pretty exciting. And it's it's only going to be growing. So maybe one day you'll have him on the podcast and he's been creating CO2 offsets and I've been selling them. And you know, <laughs> now you two are sitting over there in your gold chains and, and made the uh, made the fortune on CO2. Well, Mike, you were cool to come on, but uh, before you go, tell me real quick about your book because uh, I'll uh, get this to the camera. You were kind enough to uh, give me a copy of your book and you autographed it for me. So, yeah, so I, you know, there there wasn't too many books on carbon cap and trade programs, especially in the U.S. There's 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 lots of articles you can read on carbon itself, but. Uh, so I took the California and Quebec program and, and wrote a book in 2018 that kind of starts from the beginning. What is a carbon trading program? How does it work? Um, how do you get your pre-allowances? How do you calculate your demand? And then ending with some trading strategies on how they actually can reduce their cost over time. So, you know, it's been a book, uh, you know, in 2021, a lot of private equity and hedge funds started buying that book as <laughs> as we've seen a lot of speculative capital come into carbon trading as they view it now as a commodity, um, just like oil, gas, and, and power. But for you know, majority of my career, you didn't see large funds trading in the carbon space, but that really certainly has changed over the last 24 months. But yeah, it's a great book for someone who's never uh, you know, heard of or, or looked at uh, you know, a carbon cap and trade program. I'll read it and then I'll give it to mom. So, uh, so mom can, can do it. Cause no, I think you're great to come on and I appreciate you talking, uh, this through me. Cause at, at the end of the day, like we were talking about earlier, I mean, this is a tidal wave. Everybody is going to have to do something to this effect. And we can take the position as an industry, as a company that, you know, Hey, uh, this is all grift. It's all BS. Well, people are ultimate consumers don't feel that way. And if we don't address their concerns, we're going to get left on the sidelines, I think. I mean, obviously ESG I felt was was the trending word of 2021 and and now you have the SEC that wants companies to, you know, start reporting and measuring their their CO2 emissions. So, yeah, it, it's going to continue, so it's going to be an interesting run. Well, thanks for coming on, Mike, and uh, be sure to tell, uh, tell Brian I said hi. Will do. Thanks for having me, Chuck. Sure.